Welcome to the Fit Vegan Body Podcast with your host, Aaron Cattell, the vegan coach. The point of this podcast is to give you an in-depth but practical approach when it comes to losing weight, being healthy, or gaining muscle on a vegan or plant-based diet. We will have guests every single week to help clear up any confusion and make sure that you are 100% confident in your choice of your lifestyle. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of the Fit Vegan Body. I'm here with Dr. Alan Desmond. He is, I suppose, one of the most passionate doctors I've spoken to recently. Um, do I call you Dr. Alan? Alan? What, what? Alan Alan's fine, Aaron. <laughs> Thank you for being um, here on this Saturday afternoon. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Really glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Cool. Um, <clears throat> before we go into anything, I just want to kind of... Um, I guess for the audience listening, kind of hear your story and what it is you actually do, because I know I have Okay, sure. Yeah. Well, Aaron, I'm, I'm a doctor. I'm a consultant gastroenterologist, also certified in general internal medicine. Um, I'm Irish. I live in the UK. I live down in beautiful Devon. And I guess I entered medical school in 1995, qualified 2001, um, did my training in Ireland, Cork, Dublin, and Oxford. And finally took up a job as a consultant gastroenterologist in lovely South Devon. Um, so I spend a lot of my time seeing and treating patients with digestive disorders, Crohn's disease, and ulcerative colitis are particular areas of interest to me yeah. and areas that I did a lot of my research in as an undergraduate. Um, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. <coughs> Um, but, but I spend an awful lot of my time dealing with people with inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, colitis, irritable bowel syndrome, digestive dysfunction, that sort of thing. I also do a lot of diagnostic endoscopy, uh, gastroscopy and colonoscopy. Um, uh, so doing procedures on people, which is one of the nice things about gastroenterology. Oh, bless you. One, one of the nice things about gastroenterology is that we get to... Um, you know, we, we get to talk to people about their symptoms and do their blood tests and all the rest of it. But we also get to put a camera inside people and have a look at the organ we're treating yeah. in its, you know, within the human body, doing its thing, um, which um, sounds a little bit nerdy. Um, <laughs> but, 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 you know, even after all these years of being steeped in the world of gastroenterology, I still find it fascinating. For sure. And I think you said internal medicine as well. Um, I really don't know what that's about. I think. Yeah, sure. So, so um, as, part of my, as part of my job, I'm also involved in seeing and treating patients, I guess, with general medical conditions. Yeah. Um, so I'll do weekends on call when I'm covering the uh, patients who are being admitted through the emergency department. So in that setting, uh, I'll often be dealing with patients who have heart attacks or strokes or clots in their lungs or clots in their legs or pneumonia or all these things that we just refer to as kind of general medical, um, uh, as well as spending a lot of time in my own specialty. Yeah. So I think also it's important to note, like obviously you know your stuff when it comes to nutrition as well. And some doctors don't get much like nutrition training so where did you learn I suppose what you know about nutrition yeah I guess I've, I've heard it said a lot um, that doctors don't get trained very much in nutrition and I definitely think that there's a lot of improvements that can be made and I think those improvements are happening now I think undergraduate courses are being updated so people are getting more training in nutrition. I guess when I was in university, we got trained in the basics of nutrition. We learned about organic chemistry, 
We learned about the basic building blocks of human nutrition. We learned about deficiencies. Um, I guess because I was always interested in gastroenterology, I was more interested in the nuts and bolts of human nutrition, even when I was in university and coming up as a kind of a younger junior doctor. But if you're a gastroenterologist and you are treating people all the time and spend most of your week talking to people about their digestive symptoms, you will find that you will inevitably get really interested in the foods that people are eating and the science behind why those foods might be good or bad for digestive health. So I guess I've had to educate myself on the uh, benefits of healthy nutrition in order to maximize the benefits that I see from my patients. Absolutely. Yeah, and I wanted to really talk to you because I find what you do absolutely fascinating. Um, I almost felt like I wanted to go back to school and like study it myself. <laughs> I was like, oh, really? Yeah. I just was like, like the amount of, like as I learned about the importance of the gut and the gut microbiome, I was kind of like, wow, like this seems like it could be like such a massive thing for everybody if we understood it more um and that comes absolutely it's a great time to be a gastroenterologist at the moment in 2018 because i think medicine in general and even the you know public media have really switched on to the importance of gut health in terms of people's overall health yeah um i, I was very lucky i trained at university college cork and cork university hospital so when i was very early in my career when i was just a few years out of med school i guess back in 2003 2004, when I was starting my very early training in gastroenterology, I was supervised by guys like Professor Fred Shannon and Professor Amy Quigley, who then were trailblazers in terms of highlighting the importance of the microbiome. Um, so I was really kind of tuned into that from the very early days of my training. Um, so I've always been aware of the microbiome as a player in human disease. Uh, particularly in gastrointestinal disease, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. But the fact that the um, gut microbiome has such an important role to play in human health and longevity, helping us to digest our food, controlling our blood sugars, maintaining a healthy body weight, helping to keep our immune system working effectively. I mean, there's papers coming every week on this you know where our microbiome health has even been linked to things like improved mood or the ability to deal with stress uh, reducing your risk of developing diabetes food allergies Crohn's disease colitis it's just um, it's a like I said it's a great time to be a gastroenterologist yeah I think the list would be shorter if you listed things that it doesn't have to um, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> True. Uh, so we've obviously mentioned the gut microbiome a lot do you mind just doing like a brief overview of what oh sure well like what your listeners ought to know is that we are not alone Aaron <laughs> um, our bodies and particularly our digestive systems contain trillions of microorganisms um, we think probably about uh, 10 with 40 zeros after it that, uh, that is the number of bugs that there are living within our intestinal tracts. That's uh, more stars than there are, than there are in the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. um, so these are bacteria, yeasts, viruses, and an ancient family of microorganisms called archaea. And these all make up our gut microbiome, the bugs that live within us. Um, and it shouldn't alarm anybody because it turns out that having a healthy microbiome and having all these bugs living within us is just an important part of being a whole human. Yeah. Um, the microbiome's been with uh, humans throughout human evolution. 
So I guess you could say our microbiome has been with us for the last 4 million years. Mm -hmm. um, but on an individual basis, our microbiome begins the moment we're born. Uh, the first contact, the first breath, the bacteria in the environment start to populate our digestive tracts. And in the last 15 years, medical science has realized that the microbiome uh, is a key player in human health. Uh, our bodies need the microbes to survive and thrive just as much as the bugs need us to survive and thrive. It's a, it's a true symbiosis. Um, in, in many ways, the microbiome is acting as a, an extra organ within our body with its own unique function and its own unique uh, metabolisms or metabolism. Um, and in fact, a, a healthy gut microbiome weighs about one and a half kilos, but the same as a healthy human liver. And it contains about 200 times as much genetic material as the rest of the human body. Uh, so it's, it, it's crazy, but it is, so therefore it shouldn't surprise us that um, a healthy gut microbiome is just a really important part to being a healthy and whole human being. Yeah, and I think also, um, I mentioned before, is that it does almost get, I wouldn't say inherited, but passed down from your mother as well. That's kind of like the origin. Yeah, well, well that's, the, that's the first, that, that's our first real human contact. So the, so the, the birth process. Um, so our microbiome starts forming from the moment we're born. Um, by the age of about two, it's pretty much fully established. It's taken on its kind of adult uh, structure. And once we've been weaned and we start eating foods, um, our microbiome uh, is really defined on a day-to-day -day basis by the foods that we eat. Mm -hmm. So for an adult, um, uh, so once we're adults, um, the foods that we eat um, really are the, uh, you know, the the far the far uh, the greatest determinant of the yeah. bacteria that make up our microbiome so it's not a set kind of thing that we're going to have if we we're born with a i don't know if we had i don't know bad bacteria when we we're from zero to five it's okay that when we're an adult as long as we eat the correct foods and look after it we're going to be yeah. all right well, well the research um seems to seems to be suggesting that the gut microbiome is incredibly versatile um, which makes sense. I mean, I, I remember seeing research previously on one of our um, close primate relatives, I think it was on a gorilla, looking at changes in the gorilla microbiome um, with the seasonality of the foods available. Mm -hmm. um, so because the microbiome is so uh, intrinsically involved in digesting our food, um, if you change the food that you're eating, you'll promote different sorts of bacteria to flourish within your microbiome. Because after all, our, the bacteria within our microbiome depend on the foods that we're eating. That's where they're getting their nourishment too. So if you eat a diet that's really full of healthy fiber and whole grains and broccoli and banana, et cetera, et cetera, you'll mm. promote the growth of those helpful, healthy bacteria. Whereas if you eat a diet that's rich in, should we say, dairy and red meat and eggs um, and low in fiber, you'll lose your fiber-loving healthy bacteria and you'll start to gain bacteria, for example, that are able to make harmful substances like uh, TMAO, um, which is capable of um, producing atherosclerosis and heart problems. So the microbiome really does respond um, to the foods that we're eating and, and is pretty versatile. Okay. So 
I guess you could understand that the the more variety of fiber and different plants that you're having is going to help all the different types of gut bacteria thrive and each one's got a different function in the body. Yeah, hugely. You know, the, um, I know you spoke, spoke to a doctor, you spoke to Will Bolsowitz before, didn't you? And yeah. I, I, I think he and I um, would, would probably say the same thing on this and it's evidence-based. I mean, the um, one project where we've learned so much about the gut microbiome is the American and British Gut Project. So that's a really interesting this kind of uh, collaboration of citizen scientists where over 10,000 volunteers from the US, Britain, and around the world have filled out these big long questionnaires all about their diet and health, et cetera, et cetera, and then sent a poo sample in so that the uh, scientists can analyze their microbiome. And that's helped those scientists describe what are the main determinants of a healthy microbiome. And when we say a healthy microbiome, we mean a microbiome that is abundant and diverse and has got plenty of fiber-loving bacteria within it. And the number one determinant of a healthy and diverse microbiome is the diversity of plants that we eat. Um, So if we eat a wide variety of plants, we're eating fiber, and our bacteria love fiber. So every plant-based food, if it's a bean, a green, or a whole grain, contains a different type of fiber and important phytonutrient and our microbiome loves them all. <laughs> okay. So for people that are thinking, oh, I'm going to go on a juice fast or something silly like that, where you're taking the fiber out of the food or even just having processed foods, that's obviously not going to be very beneficial. Yeah, that's it. Um, so depriving yourself of fiber is never a good idea. I mean, people always worry, you know, oh, am I getting enough protein? Am I getting enough of vitamin, whatever, vitamin B or vitamin D, yeah. et cetera. Those, are, those things are important. But I think the, um, the dietary deficiency that people don't talk about so much, it, it, maybe it's not so sexy, is talking about fiber. Um, you know, most national dietary guidelines tell us that we should be eating or aiming for at least 30 grams of fiber per day. Um, but the sad truth is that most people don't get anywhere near that. I think the average fiber consumption um, in the US is about 15 grams per day. Yeah. And it's about the same in the UK. And if we're not eating enough fiber, it has pretty deleterious effects on our gut microbiome. So let's talk about fiber for a couple of seconds. So why yeah. is fiber important? Um, people think of fiber as being just something you eat to prevent constipation or something. But mm. actually, it's so much more complicated and interesting than that. So when we eat fiber, our gut microbiome thrives. There's a, we promote the growth of various bacteria that digest fiber to do substances called short-chain fatty acids. Um, and we get short-chain fatty acids within our system exclusively from these bacteria. So this is stuff that's made by our gut microbiome, um, which has a huge positive impact on our health. So these short-chain fatty acids, which have names like butyrate, acetate, propionate, they actually bind to receptors in the lining of our gut, these L cells, and they they directly activate signals within our bodies to help control our blood sugar and to help to reduce our appetite and control our intake of calories. They also act as nutrients for the cells that line our gut wall 
helping to maintain the uh, gut barrier and prevent leaky gut syndrome. They also uh, send those um, cells lining the gut signals to use up oxygen because the healthy bacteria like a low oxygen environment. And if we don't get enough fiber in our diet, guess what happens? We get increased caloric intake, we get poor blood sugar control, uh, we get a breakdown of the gut barrier, so we get toxins entering the system and causing systemic inflammation. It, essentially, a low-fiber diet is a recipe for weight gain, type 2 diabetes, um, systemic inflammation and coronary vascular disease, and a lot of that is down to um, the deleterious effects it has in the microbiome. So that's fiber, not yeah. just to help you go to the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> so we would class fiber as a prebiotic, and then obviously the gut bacteria that we consume if we need to as a supplement would be then classed as a probiotic for people wondering. Yeah, diet. so a, a prebiotic is, really refers to fiber and small carbohydrates that the human body itself can't digest and upon which we rely uh, upon the microbiome, our bugs, to digest for us. And the reason that those are desirable is because when the bacteria digest them, they make these short-chain fatty acids, which are really, really important for human health on numerous levels. Yeah. Um, I guess probiotics are a, are, are a different, um, are a different uh, proposal then. So probiotics are bacteria, um, individual bacteria, that have been linked by research to uh, beneficial effects. Um, so these are supplements that you can buy that usually contain maybe one, two, or three different bacteria. Mm -hmm. um, so I've seen those promoted really as something that everybody should take every single day, um, but the evidence doesn't really support that. I do um, use them myself. I do prescribe them sometimes to patients in very specific situations. Yeah. Um, often patients with certain forms of an inflammatory bowel disease. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't recommend that people just take them um, yeah. on, on a daily basis um, as a kind of a general health promoting supplement. Yeah, for sure. So for people, I, mean, I want to talk more about those later when we talk about antibiotics, but for people that are unsure if their gut microbiome is actually healthy or where it should be, how, like, can you test it? Like, what signs are you going to have? Obviously, your health isn't going to be optimum, but is there a test that can be done? Like, what kind of symptoms or signs can you kind of look out for? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the, um, the science of microbiome analysis, even though there's been so much work done on it, is still emerging. Um, there are companies that there that you can send off a sample to and they'll send you back a result and they'll give you a lot of interpretation and say oh you've got a certain amount of bad bacteria a certain amount of good bacteria and in fact i've had uh, patients of mine come to my clinic and they'll have a report from a private company and it'll say oh look you've got a certain bacteria should we say clostridium in your gut and we know that if clostridium gets into your blood it can cause a dreadful infection Therefore, this is probably a bad bacteria and you want to get rid of it. But in, in fact, that's, you know, sort of missing the subtlety of the situation. And the art of microbiome analysis for individuals um, isn't really there yet. The science isn't really there yet. But what you could do is you could send a stool sample off to the, uh, 
the American or British Microbiome Project. I think it costs about £75. Mm -hmm. And then you're contributing to a scientific endeavor, and they will give you a report telling you how your microbiome compares uh, to people living in your country, and will also give you indicators of the diversity of your microbiome. Um, without trying to make um, statements about disease and absence of disease that aren't really evidence-based. Sounds like a, um, a perfect prank, sending your poo in the mail. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, good, well, well they're, they're asking for it. They'll send yeah. you the kit and everything. You know, this is, this is their wheelhouse. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so when I kind of told my followers you know, I'm interviewing you podcast episode, what questions do you have? There was a lot of questions regarding antibiotics because we know that you know, antibiotics isn't exactly favorable for your gut microbiome because it just wipes out pretty much everything. Um, obviously necessary if you've got a bad infection, but how can you build back up your gut microbiome from that? Because like you said, having supplement form of the gut bugs, you're only having one to three different strands whereas there's probably what a thousand different strands that could be present in the, in the in the stomach oh well in terms of families of bacteria um, generally in the in this part of the world we might have about 800 different types yeah. um, there's probably about 20 types that are common to most people and mm-hmm. those make up the majority of the bacteria but yeah that you can have up to 800 types and in shall we say less developed countries or more rural countries or countries where people tend to eat a more plant-based diet, the number can be far higher than um, 800. Yeah. So, what's so, the so, so, I guess, <laughs> so, so I guess what you're asking is, how can you restore your microbiome or how can you keep a healthy yeah. microbiome? Yeah, I guess restore um, after a round of antibiotics. Yeah, well, a few, a few comments. Um, first of all, obviously, antibiotics are, have been of incredible benefit to humankind. Yeah. Um, without antibiotics, things like pneumonia and meningitis or even simple skin infections would be fatal in every case. And things like surgery wouldn't be possible uh, without antibiotics. So I don't want to diss antibiotics too much, <laughs> um, but certainly a single course of antibiotics seriously alters the balance and diversity of the human microbiome. And by avoiding unnecessary courses of antibiotics would be the first tip, really. So yeah. if you've got a cough or a cold or a headache and you're with your GP and your, or your doctor and your doctor thinks it's going to sell without antibiotics, then I guess just take their advice. You know, don't take that unnecessary course of antibiotics yeah. um, and don't expose your microbiome to an unnecessary threat, I guess. Um, Another way to avoid excess or unnecessary antibiotics is to remove meat and dairy from your diet. Um, The great majority of antibiotics used in the world um, are antibiotics that are given at low doses to um, animals, um, particularly animals um, that are being raised in factory settings uh, in which most animals are. Um, And those antibiotics find their way through the food chain and into our gut. And we know that uh, people who eat meat and dairy will have antibiotic resistant organisms within their microbiome. So I guess those are the two tips for um, avoiding exposure to unnecessary antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of restoring your microbiome balance after course of antibiotics, before we get onto the probiotic issue, there's a few things. We already talked about a healthy diet, eating yeah. a wide variety of plants. Um, next thing would be getting enough sleep and allowing yourself time to recover. You know, the bugs of our microbiome seem to work on the same 24-hour daily cycle as the rest of our body. 
And some researchers think that the microbiome may even have an important role in setting our body clock. Um, we know from the uh, American Gut Project that we discussed earlier that sleep deprivation, shift work, and even jet lag have all been linked to reduce microbial diversity. So as I've said to people before, show your microbiome some love by getting seven to eight hours sleep. Yeah. Uh, next tip would be, as you get over your illness and you're getting over those antibiotics, make sure you get out and get some exercise. Um, in 2014, a team of Irish researchers showed that elite rugby players uh, showed an impressive level of microbiome diversity. And further studies have shown that we can all get, reap the uh, gut health benefits of regular exercise, which seems to help boost the levels of healthy, fiber-loving bacteria. And if you are going to exercise, try and exercise outdoors if you can. Yeah. Um, a sanitized indoor lifestyle is not the best for microbial health. People who live in the countryside tend to have healthier, more, more diverse uh, microbiomes, probably because they're living in a more microbially rich environment. Yeah. Um, so get in the outdoors. If you can't get, if you can't get to outdoors, maybe just go to a park or a garden. And that will allow you to pick up some bacteria. Get dirty. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Get out and repopulate your microbiome. And then we talked earlier about probiotics. Um, there are two um, probiotics in particular, uh, Lactobacillus GG and the other one, which I'll remember in a moment, which can also be helpful in terms of restoring um, your gut microbiome after course antibiotics. So I've been some studies looking at these two particular um, probiotics, uh, Lactobacillus GG, and the other one was Saccharomyces boulardii. Um, so I'll sometimes uh, prescribe those to people for a week or two, but it really only is for a few weeks because I, in the seldom circumstances when I prescribe probiotics, I try to give it with that healthy dietary advice alongside because that's yeah. going to be the long-term solution. And that's what the new, I guess, gut microbiome is going to feed on. So it needs some food. For yeah, we, you, you, you asked earlier about prebiotics. So that's it exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so eat your plants, eat your whole grains, eat your beans and legumes. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Um, I think while we're going down this road, would you then kind of say somebody that's recovering from a round of antibiotics or even just people in general to avoid the animal products because they, like you said, they contain low doses of antibiotics, but is there other reasons why they should kind of avoid those foods? Well, I suppose, it, I, I guess we've come to another topic then. I'm sure this is one that you're signed up to is the <laughs> whole concept, the whole concept of a plant-based diet and the, the overall health benefits of a plant-based diet. Yeah. I guess, and that it's been my work with patients with inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's and colitis, that led me to recommending a plant-based diet for patients. Now, we can talk later about why I started recommending that for patients with IBD. Um, but when it comes to health in general, and I'm sure you have talked about this before on your podcast, um, when we look at the healthiest populations in the world, when we look at the blue zone populations from Dan Buechner's mm -hmm. work with National Geographic, yeah. we find that the healthiest populations in the world are eating plants. Yeah. They're getting 95% of the calories from plant, from plant sources. And if we look at Okinawa, uh, Japan's blue zone, yeah. they've got the longest disability-free life expectancy in the world. They've got, uh, you know, one-sixth the rate of cardiovascular disease, uh, five times the rate of living to 100. And what are they eating? Well, 96% of their food source is vegan. Yeah. Um, uh, so it turns out that the gut healthy diet 
and the microbiome healthy diet is also the cardiovascular healthy diet and the uh, colon cancer healthy diet and the breast cancer healthy diet. Yeah. Um, so it, it all kind Makes of sense. point, it all comes to the same direct, same, same place. Yeah. And if you look at the um, perhaps the best studied blue zone, the US blue zone in Loma Linda, uh, California, mm-hmm. um, you see these um, Seventh day Adventists who put a great emphasis on healthy lifestyle, physical activity, healthy living, community, and faith, but also put a lot of emphasis on a plant based diet. And the males there are living 11 years longer than the US average. Um, they've got in- impressively low rates of type 2 diabetes, digestive cancers, and heart disease. And what are they eating? Well, they're eating a plant-based diet. Uh, the Seventh-day Adventists who eat meat don't eat a lot of meat. Half of them are vegetarian, and one in 12 are completely plant-based. And even when you look at that healthy population, you find that the Seventh-day Adventists who are completely plant-based have even lower rates of heart disease and even lower rates of type 2 diabetes. So they are the healthiest of the healthy. So, yeah. when, so when I recommend plant-based diet um, to my patients for their digestive problems, I know that I'm doing them a favor. I'm, I'm yeah. recommending that they make dietary changes that will stand them in good stead, reduce their risk of diabetes, obesity, hypertension, heart attack, stroke, colon cancer, you name it. Okay. So for those of people that are listening and they're like, I'd love to try a plant-based diet, except from I have sensitivities, IBS, or like need to follow a low FODMAP diet, which is obviously quite tricky to follow. Where do you kind of draw the line there? Like, is it just basically they just need to be stricter with themselves or is there certain things that are probably going to be more helpful for them? Well, I I guess one of the things about moving to a whole food plant-based diet and and, and we put equal emphasis on whole food, right? Not just plant-based. Yeah. We want to be avoiding all the processed stuff. Yeah. Uh, we didn't talk about that earlier, but, you know, processed foods uh, with their additives and flavor enhancers, all those things have been shown to have deleterious effects on uh, microbiome diversity and gut health as well. Um, but when we move to a whole food plant-based diet, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier that the average fiber intake in the Western world is about 15 or 16 grams a day which is far short of the target 30 grams that uh, guidelines call for. Yeah. Um, but once you switch to a whole food plant-based diet, you're going to be eating 45 or 50 or 60 grams of fiber a day. And if you've not been used to that for all of your life, your microbiome is not going to be ready for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're going to end up getting bloating and gas and digestive discomfort on, for several weeks until your microbiome gets used to your new healthier eating pattern. So for for that reason, we usually um, advise people to make the change slowly rather than overnight. And as they move to a whole food plant-based diet to maybe just ease themselves into eating large volumes of fibrous foods, you know, like your, um, you know, your, particularly your beans, um, particularly, you know, high fiber foods like, uh, well, you name it really, anything, large volumes of greens and fiber and whole grains. You, you need to make those changes slowly. Um, actually, that's one of the um, real challenges, I think, um, for people transitioning to whole food plant-based. Um, I'm, I wor- I'm working at the moment with um, the happy pair, um, Stephen and David Flynn. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so we are developing a six-week online course that will introduce people to a whole food plant-based diet but will overcome that problem because it's going to start off as a uh, kind of a very low FODMAP um, plant-based diet and then gradually introduce these various FODMAPs over the six-week period. So hopefully people will be able to transition to a very whole food plant-based diet over a six-week period without experiencing those, those digestive problems. And then I guess the end result <coughs> is that they would be able to then recover from the symptoms that they'll have when having FODMAPs and therefore no longer, maybe not being cured, but like have a much stronger gut microbiome. Yeah, well, well, the thing is, I guess, you know, beans, legumes and whole grains do contain a lot of FODMAPs. Now, so what's a FODMAP? So FODMAPs are these small carbohydrates that are in plants that aren't digested by us. They're digested by our uh, gut microbiome. You asked earlier about prebiotics. Mm -hmm. Essentially, FODMAPs are a form of prebiotic. They're a good thing. Um, they promote a healthy microbiome. They're a hallmark of a healthy diet. But... Some people's microbiomes um, perhaps aren't set up to handle them so well, particularly if we are generally eating the standard American or standard Western diet, uh, where we're getting 15 grams of fiber per day, where we're getting only 9% of our calories from fresh fruits and vegetables, where we're getting 55% of our calories from ultra-processed foods that our grandparents and great-grandparents wouldn't even recognize as foods. Yeah. So if you, if, you, if you go from that um, and then you go to a whole food plant-based diet where you're eating whole foods, starchy vegetables, beans, nuts, whole grains, uh, legumes, chickpeas, and you're getting 45, 50 grams of fiber a day, it's going to take you a little while to adjust. Yeah. So you've got, you've got to make those changes slowly. Yeah. And I think while we're on the topic, also worth mentioning gluten. Like, I feel, I think I recall Will saying um that one in three or somewhere around there actually have like a the gluten gene or something the gluten yeah well well i think um gluten and has been unfairly demonized really hasn't it yeah um of course we do have this phenomenon of celiac disease yeah and there does seem to be a microbiome component to the celiac disease story because the majority of people who carry the gene for celiac disease don't express the disease. Yeah. Um, in order to have celiac disease, you, you seem to require a certain dysbiosis or an abnormality in your gut microbiome. But <coughs> once celiac disease is out of the box, as it were, the only way that we have right now to reverse it is to take gluten completely out of your diet. So for people who have a confirmed diagnosis of celiac disease, and gluten is something they need to avoid. Yeah. But, for the, but for the vast majority of other people, um, gluten is beneficial. And why is that? Because gluten in its, you know, it comes, it's, it's whole grains, man. It comes, it comes wrapped up in whole grains. And we know that whole grain consumption is a marker of a healthy diet. We know that uh, the consumption of whole grains reduces your risk of obesity, type 2 diabetes, and in, in one of the areas of my particular interest, uh, colorectal cancer, yeah. as well as Crohn's disease. So the World Cancer Research Fund uh, report that came out earlier this year, looking at uh, risk factors for various cancers, wants everybody to eat more whole grains. Uh, unfortunately, I see a ton of people at my clinic every 
every week or every month who are suffering from digestive symptoms, whether that's, you know, constipation or bloating or sluggishness, sluggishness. Mm-hmm. And I, I usually ask them three questions, you know, how many pieces of fruit do you eat a day? How many servings of vegetables do you eat per day? And how many servings of whole grains do you eat per day? And really I want them to say three to each question. Yeah. But often um, I'll hear the people are eating maybe an apple every couple of days. That's their fruit, that they don't like vegetables and they don't eat whole grains because gluten's bad for you. And carbs, right? <laughs> because of carbs, yeah, they're worried about carbs. And look, I, I, I'm not saying that processed carbs are good for you. I'm not saying that that, that um, soft white bread that stays fresh on the shelf for five days is good for you. God no, processed carbohydrates are not a healthy choice. But what I'm talking is about healthy whole carbs, yeah. whole grains, starchy foods, sweet potato, potato vegetables, beans, peas, split peas, lentils, and whole grains are all healthy for you. And I just think it's a shame that this um, kind of uh, popular notion or myth that gluten is a bad guy means that a lot of people aren't getting the benefits of whole grains. Yeah. So I think, I think also I recall is that it's the processed gluten that most people are having the, the bad symptoms with, not the whole form of the gluten. Because of oh, sure. And it's, it's the pastries. And, you know, I mean, people say to me, oh, you know, if I, eat, um, if I have a big pasta dish, I feel terribly bloated. And, of course, that might, that's probably a white processed pasta dish in a creamy sauce yeah. with bacon. <laughs> you know, <laughs> of course you feel bloated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's important to kind of talk about what your main focus is with Crohn's disease and the research that you're doing. I think when we spoke, we were kind of in the process of conducting your own kind of research that was kind of going to help with that. Yeah, you're 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 right. Yeah, thanks for asking about that, Aaron. The um, so in fact, inflammatory bowel disease was my um. This was what brought me to promoting a plant-based diet. In fact, I'm not even sure I knew what a plant-based diet was before I started researching this for my patients. Um, so I've been involved in seeing and treating patients with inflammatory bowel disease um, since very early in my medical career, so maybe 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, Crohn's disease and colitis, are conditions whereby parts of the lining of the bowel become red and sore and inflamed. In ulcerative colitis, it affects the entire colon, and perhaps 20% of patients with that will end up having their colon removed, having a big operation to remove the colon. And the Crohn's disease, in Crohn's disease, you get these segments of segments of inflammation anywhere in your digestive tract, often in the small bowel or, or large bowel, and about 40% of patients with Crohn's disease will end up also having surgery to remove diseased segments of their bowel. So these are serious uh, conditions to have and very debilitating. Um, people who have these conditions do not enjoy good digestive health. And the majority of patients with inflammatory bowel disease would describe themselves as having, or would, as, would describe themselves as having poor or suboptimal health in general. Now, when I was in medical school, we were taught that uh, inflammatory bowel disease was really just a genetic disease. You had gotten unlucky in the genetic lottery. There was something wrong with your immune system. It was attacking your gut. Uh, But what we now know in 2018 is that although there are genetic um, signals that increase your risk of having inflammatory bowel disease, 
the genetic markers for inflammatory bowel disease don't really define the type of disease you have or the course of the disease that you have. So the genetic markers don't tell us how severe your disease is going to be, how much medications you're going to need, or whether you need surgery. And the other um, factors that are much more important are the environmental factors, particularly diet. Now, yeah. when inflammatory bowel disease was described early in the 20th century, it was a rare condition. You know, this was a, a condition that had come out of nowhere. Um, it was very rare, very interesting, um, and was discussed in great depth in medical journals. But the rates of inflammatory bowel disease in Europe absolutely exploded in the late 20th century. And we know from uh, demographic data from Europe and from uh, countries that were industrialized later, like Japan, that as countries begin to eat more meat, more dairy, more processed food, more emulsifiers, more artificial flavor enhancers, that the rates of these conditions go right up alongside it. Do you, could you imagine that right now in Europe, um, about one in 150 people have inflammatory bowel disease? I mean, you probably know someone with Crohn's disease or colitis. Um, yeah. And, and these, these conditions have become really, really common. Um, last year, The Lancet, one of the big medical journals, um, issued a, a real clarion call, said, look, inflammatory bowel disease is a slow epidemic which is strongly related to Western diet, and we need to start doing something about this. And when, so alongside that, um, when patients sit down with you and they've just been diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease, and you talk to them about the condition and the medication and the scans and the tests that they're going to need, invariably they say at the end of that conversation, uh, what about diet, doc? Is there anything I can do with diet? Um, so we used to tell them, well, it doesn't really matter. Find what suits you. Uh, maybe don't eat, you know, you told me you're having a, a diarrhea, so maybe cut down on the fiber because that makes you constipated and you'll feel better. You know? mm -hmm. uh, but, but what we now know is that dietary fiber, particularly fiber from uh, fruit sources, is very helpful therapeutically. We know that animal protein consumption actually increases your risk of developing inflammatory bowel disease and reducing it can help to reduce the activity of inflammatory bowel disease. We know that dairy fat in, induces inflammatory bowel disease in genetically predisposed animals, no dairy exposure, no colitis. Mm -hmm. And we know that eliminating dairy um, can help patients with inflammatory bowel disease to control their symptoms. And we also know that if people eat a lot of meat and a lot of dairy, um, it can uh, promote changes in the microbiome, which can promote inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, I know a couple of years ago, there's really interesting research done, I think at Harvard, where they took a group of volunteers and they put them essentially on a carnivore diet. This was a couple of years before people started talking about the carnivore diet. So yeah. they just went on a diet of meat, essentially. And just within a day, we started seeing unfavorable changes within the microbiome and an outgrowth of bacteria that could um, provoke or promote inflammatory bowel disease. So I got to this point where I was, when patients would ask me that question, what about diet doc, anything I can do with diet? I would say, well, I'd like you to avoid processed foods. I'd like you to cut down on your animal protein and your animal fat. I'd like you to cut down on dairy. I'd like you to avoid processed foods and emulsifiers and food additives. I'd like you to eat more whole foods and fruits and vegetables and legumes and walnuts and flax seeds and whole grains. And essentially what I was recommending was a whole food plant-based diet, uh, yeah. both to prevent and help treat inflammatory bowel disease. And in the last year or two, we've seen this enter the mainstream in gastroenterology. There was a big review in one of our main um, 
medical research journals, uh, GUT, uh, published earlier this year, looking at the role of diet in inflammatory bowel disease for prevention and treatment. And we've had reports coming out of hospitals around the world where they're actually using plant-based diet to treat patients. And at my own hospital, we've got funding now um, to run a study where we're going to take patients with Crohn's disease and put them on a plant-based diet as part of their treatment. And we're just going to really carefully assess their response to that treatment over a 12-week period. So that's mm-hmm. a really exciting research project that I'm really glad to be involved in and hopefully we'll be recruiting patients early in the new year. Yeah, sounds good. And is that also the kind of, I mean, down that road with fecal transplants, is that kind of research as well that is going to be happening with Crohn's disease? Because I think it's already yeah. happening with colitis. That's right. So FMT, so um, fecal microbial transplant or poop transplant. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, so that's a really interesting area of research. We do use it at my hospital. We use it very specifically for people who have a gut infection called Clostridium difficile. Mm-hmm. So uh, Clostridium difficile is a uh, bacteria that about 5% of the population carry their gut, but it's generally a very minor component of the gut and doesn't cause any problems. But if you have a course of antibiotics for some other reason and your microbiome is thrown out of balance, the Clostridium can become rather dominant and start producing this dreadful toxin, which causes a form of colitis and diarrhea. And we usually try and clear that with specific antibiotics. But in the last few years, we've realized that in difficult to treat cases, if we give them a microbiome transplant from a healthy person, we can clear the seed of the seal. Um, but there is also ongoing research um, looking at whether we could use that as a treatment option for patients with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. And there's been some really um, kind of positive results coming out but the studies haven't been big enough yet um, or convincing enough yet that we can recommend uh, we can recommend it as a mainstream treatment instead of research tool at the moment but maybe one day but of course as i've said to you earlier one of the uh, key determinants of our microbiome is the food that we're eating um, so we can probably garner a lot of the benefits of microbiome transplant for patients with inflammatory bowel disease by making positive dietary change yeah, so fecal transplant is kind of the last resort if you haven't already. Yeah, maybe. And I, I don't know where, where it's going to end up being positioned as a treatment in inflammatory bowel disease. Um, but who knows? We might be doing it routinely in five or 10 years. Um, but, yeah. but the research isn't there yet. We haven't really spoken about the role of the gut with people's weight. And I know this is quite a big topic as well because we, as I guess you see all the people on facebook instagram saying it's just as simple as uh, calories in versus calories out but if your gut microbiome isn't functioning well then it's a lot you know that's just a very simplified way of it so what is the role of the gut microbiome in somebody that is either struggling to lose weight or just really good at losing weight so how does that kind of work yeah, you're right. So, so I've, you, you, I'm sure you've heard that discussed before. We mentioned earlier um, when we were chatting about the fact that our gut microbiome has an important role to play in altering our intake of calories, right? So if we have, um, if we have a fiber-rich diet, we produce short-chain fatty acids, which actually directly send signals um, uh, via the gut lining cells to help reduce our caloric intake and help uh, control our blood sugars. So the gut microbiome certainly has an important role in uh, helping us to maintain a healthy body weight. 
Um, and if we eat a diet that is low in fiber and high in fat and high in animal protein, um, our microbiome changes its characteristics. And have you seen, have you heard of these studies where you can um, make a skinny mouse fat <laughs> by yeah. giving it a fat mouse's microbiome? Yeah, so those studies are crazy. So, yeah, so researchers take the microbiome from these fat mice and transplant it into these skinny mice, and then the skinny mice get fat. Um, yeah. So that, I guess, underlines the importance of, a, of, of the microbiome's role in determining body weight. But of course, Aaron, the important part of that research is, is in order to get those fat mice for those experiments, they had to put them on a high-dairy, high-fat diet first. Yeah. So it wasn't that those mice inherently had a fat microbiome. The yeah. researchers had to keep them on a, uh, a high-calorie processed, high-fat diet to get them fat first and yeah. then take their microbiome and transplant it into the skinny mice. So basically the takeaway point is just don't eat that kind of diet and you should be okay. Yeah, although there, there is some research out there that's showing that perhaps um, certain microbiomes are not conducive to maintaining a healthy body weight. Um, but I, I, I genuinely think, I mean, we've seen so many studies in the last couple of years showing that if we put people on a whole food plant-based diet without calorie restriction, <coughs> that they will effectively lose weight. They will stick with the program and they will reverse their um, insulin resistance and even reverse their diabetes. So I think a whole food plant-based diet can probably overcome those issues for most people. Yeah, and I can think that is the difference between someone that is vegan and someone that is whole food plant-based because I work with a lot of vegan people that are having a mm. processed diet and struggling to lose weight, whereas somebody that's whole food plant-based is more likely i suppose to be a, a healthier weight yeah and when we look at um data from i mean if we bring it I, I, it's i'm a bit obsessed with the microbiome you can tell i'm <laughs> bringing it all back to the microbiome right but if we look at the data from the american british gut project um the diversity of plant foods that people were eating was the main determinant of their uh, gut microbiome health and diversity. And yeah. we know that eating a whole food plant-based diet, you max out the diversity and types of plant-based foods that you're eating. But that was a far more important determinant rather than whether people self-identified as vegan or vegetarian. So yeah. the lesson there is just because you're vegan, doesn't mean you're going to be healthy. Doesn't mean you're going to have a healthy microbiome or a healthy body weight. It's like anything. You've still got to eat a healthy diet. Yeah, for sure. So I want to talk a little bit more about animal products. Is there any benefit of having animal products in terms of your gut microbiome? Because, and the reason I say this, and I remember talking to you about this the last or well, the first time we spoke, was I saw somebody put up a podcast about, you know, gut microbiome and the keto diet and how it's beneficial and i was like what the hell um, so i want to kind of like is there any benefits of having it and is the keto diet at all favorable from what you've obviously mentioned and from what i know as well it seems no but yeah so so i guess the main determinants of a um of a healthy and diverse gut microbiome is the variety of plants that you eat and intake of fiber, which means that you're taking in 
starchy whole carbohydrates, right? Yeah. So if you, so my understanding of a ketogenic diet as it's commonly practiced now is it's a low carbohydrate, low starchy food diet with a lot of animal products. I mentioned earlier the study that was done in, uh, I think, in Harvard in 2014, where they put people on a carnivore diet, yep. I guess, which would be the most extreme version of a ketogenic diet. Mm-hmm. And what did they see? They saw reduced gut microbiome diversity, and they saw an outgrowth of uh, bacteria capable of triggering, triggering disease. Okay, so how can that be beneficial? Um, we'll also see an outgrowth of bacteria capable of producing TMAO, which we know is linked to heart disease, which we know is linked to coronary vascular disease, stroke, kidney disease, type 2 diabetes. So how could that be beneficial? I think if you go on a keto diet, it can certainly help you to lose weight in the short term. Um, And most of the studies looking at weight loss on this kind of high animal protein diet um, follow people for maybe a maximum of 6 to 12 months and say, yes, they lost weight. And I see a lot of the organizations that promote a kind of low carb, high fat or Atkins or keto or whatever version they're, they're touting, put a great emphasis on a number of randomized controlled studies with uh, small numbers, short period of time, generally showing weight loss. Yeah. Um, but of course, weight loss isn't the be all and end all of human health. And yes, you can lose weight on a keto diet. But are you going to be healthy in the long term on a keto diet? Um, there's, we don't have any studies that suggest you will be. Um, there aren't any natural populations in the world who have thrived on a keto diet. And more than that, I mean, just earlier this year, there was a huge uh, meta-analysis um, uh, published in The Lancet, in The Lancet Public Health, where they followed 15,000 adults in middle age for 25 years. Mm -hmm. And what they identified was that low carb (coughs) dietary patterns, which favored animal derived protein and fat were associated with a higher death rate. Mm -hmm. Um, So they reckoned that if you were 50 and you were on a low carb diet with a lot of animal products, um, you'd be reducing your life expectancy by by about four years. Um, So that's definitely not a plus. Um, they did find, however, that eating uh, plant-derived protein and fats from vegetables, nuts and peanut butter, etc., were associated with lower mortality. Um, and I know that some people are promoting a vegan keto diet as something that can be used intermittently yeah. um, to help reduce inflama- systemic inflammation, this fasting-mimicking diet. But again, they just recommend that as an intermittent tool that can be used for a couple of days a month. Um, rather than a long-term dietary approach. Um, So I think the kind of animal-based ketogenic diet to live on that um, on a daily basis for the long term um, sounds like a dreadful idea. Certainly not healthy for your microbiome. And the long-term studies tell us that low-carb, high-meat diets increase our risk of dying and having heart attacks and developing type 2 diabetes. I'm glad, I'm glad that you confirmed everything that I already thought. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's also good, though, because obviously I'm not a doctor, so it's good for people to hear it from a doctor. Um, but yeah, basically, 
that is a key point that you talked about is yeah you see all these amazing results that people get from a keto diet on weight loss because it's an immediate result and as a human our behavior is we want immediate results there's no way of being like yeah. oh yeah in yeah. 50 years time i want to be healthy because there's no way of like being able to track that you know oh this would be cool if i did this or that so i think yeah long-term health should be always be considered and there's no point of sacrificing your health just to lose weight because you can do yeah and and you know if you i mean a whole food plant-based diet if you look at um so it's a nice study i think uh, out of belgium a few years ago looking at dietary patterns in younger adults so i think between their 30s and 40s um so they rated people's diets according to um the healthy eating index which is a standard research tool which rates how healthy your diet is and what they found uh, which is a consistent finding in other studies is that people who eat a uh, plant-based diet with an emphasis on whole foods generally tend to score higher than omnivores or pescatarians do on the healthy eating index because they're eating more fresh fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, etc. And it, it, the benefits um, are evident because they are less likely to be overweight or obese. So. Uh, rates of overweight and obesity among people eating a whole food plant-based diet are really rather low. I think in that study, which was kind of predisposed to healthier, younger people, the overall obesity rate in that group was 10%, uh, which is actually quite low. Um, but the obesity rate among the vegans was only 1%. And we live in a world where two-thirds of adults are either overweight or obese. Um, so certainly if more people would eat a whole food plant-based diet, we'd be seeing a lot less obesity. And the other thing I would say is that, you know, a lot of your audience may be younger people who aren't too concerned about the diseases that they might suffer in their fifties, sixties or seventies. But the thing is, when we look at the healthiest populations in the world who have the, uh, you know, the dietary blue zones that we spoke about earlier, um, these people just aren't healthy 95 year olds. They're also far more healthy in their teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. And that's why they get to be healthy old people. I think when you look at the, um, whenever you look at the presentations or research about the Blue Zones, you see all these, you know, these uh, fantastic pictures of 95-year-old guys teaching karate or 106-year-old ladies driving around doing errands. But of course, uh, what, what, you, what you need to realize is in order to get there, they had to be super healthy in their teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. And to a large degree, they got there by eating a whole food plant-based diet. Yeah, interesting stuff. So I guess final question then, is there any negatives of having a plant-based diet? So I guess, so what are we missing out on? Um, so we don't eat meat or dairy. So what are we missing out on? So number one, if we don't eat meat and dairy, there's only three things that we're not going to get. Number one, we're not going to get animal protein. Is that a problem? No, because we know that animal protein consumption is linked to poor health outcomes. And where do animals get their protein? They get it from plants. So why not just get our protein from plants? Um, so that's not an issue. Um, secondary, second uh, thing that we're not going to get in our diet is cholesterol. So cholesterol and cholesterol consumption is linked to an increased risk of um, heart problems and um, heart attack and diabetes and disease. And that, I mean, that's debated, okay? So even if you're a cholesterol denier, 
And even if you say, look, you can eat all the cholesterol you want and it won't give you a heart attack, the fact is cholesterol does, eating cholesterol and eating animal products does raise your serum cholesterol. The best studies we have indicate that that's a bad thing, but look, if you, even if you're a cholesterol denier and you say that's not a bad thing, it's certainly not a good thing. <laughs> and yeah. Even if it's a neutral thing, we still don't need it. I haven't eaten any animal products for a few years. If you check my blood right now, I've got cholesterol in me. Why? Because animals make all the cholesterol they make from the food that they eat. Yeah. Um, so if you eat a beef burger, you're getting uh, cow cholesterol that the yeah. cow made. I've, I've got human cholesterol. I've got all the human cholesterol I need in my body to keep me happy and healthy without eating somebody else's cholesterol. So that's cholesterol. And then number three, vitamin B12. So if you're eating a whole food plant-based diet or any form of plant-based diet, if you're a junk food vegan or whatever, please take a vitamin B12 supplement. Um, vitamin B12 is made by soil bacteria. Um, I guess evolutionarily, our ancestors would have uh, ingested soil on the food that they ate or in their water supply, so would have got their vitamin B12 there, just like uh, you know uh, mountain gorillas do now. Um, but in the modern sanitized world, if you're going to be a plant-based primate or a plant-based human, please don't eat dirt or drink dirty water because you, you, you give yourself a disease, you get dysentery. Um, so you've got, another, you've got two options. You can go and eat some meat because um, animals generally are still eating soil or if they're not eating soil, they'll have been given vitamin B12 uh, supplements themselves as part of the uh, factory farming process. So you can get your supplements through an animal or you can go out and buy yourself a nice cheap vitamin B12 supplement and take that once a week job done. So those are the only three disadvantages to eating a whole food plant-based diet. I think two of them aren't a disadvantage and one of them is easily solved. Yeah, so then would you also, I mean, obviously we need vitamin D you can get from the sun in summer or... Well, vitamin D comes from sunshine. Yeah. Um, so you can get small amounts of vitamin D by eating uh, dairy, um, but really the amount that you can get in your diet um, pales in comparison to the amount you get from sunshine. And yeah. unfortunately, vitamin D deficiency is really, really common, whatever your um, dietary style. In fact, in the UK, the, uh, the Scientific Advisory uh, Committee on Nutrition, the SACN, advised that everybody take a vitamin D supplement during winter months, and that we should take a vitamin D supplement year-round if we work in the office or if we're indoors most of the day. Because unless we can guarantee ourselves 15 to 20 minutes of bright sunlight exposure per day, then we ought to take a vitamin D supplement of about a thousand international units per day. And unfortunately, um, with our modern lives and the fact that humans now live much further from the equator than they uh, evolved, um, vitamin D deficiency is an issue for lots and lots of people, vegan, vegetarian, omnivore, or carnivore. And that is exactly why it's been fortified in most of our main products that we eat. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So lots of things have vitamin D added to them for that reason. But, but, but vitamin D deficiency, um, yeah, it, it's, it's really common and it's been linked to increased risk of coronary vascular disease, dementia, falls in the elderly. Um, so I certainly take a vitamin D supplement. I take a vitamin D supplement year round, actually, uh, because although I do like to get outdoors and get out for a run and things like that, it's generally not in the middle of the day and five or six days a week I'm in the office in the middle of the day. So I, I don't get to see a lot of bright sunshine. 
Yeah, and when I say to my clients as well, it's just not worth the risk. Like it's such an affordable supplement. Like why not just have it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the um, Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition recommend that people take 400 international units um, in Dr. Michael Greger's Bible of plant-based eating. He recommends a higher dose, 2,000 international units to ensure that 75% of people, or to ensure that 95% of people get into the um, optimal uh, vitamin B12 level. But please don't take more than that. Um, If you take too much vitamin B12, you'll just pee it out. If you take take too much vitamin D, it can cause serious problems with uh, hypercalcemia and can be life-threatening. So please don't take more than 2,000 units a day. Maybe take something like 800 or 1,000 units. Don't take more than 200. Take something more than 800. Uh, Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so, um, Dr. Greger recommends 2,000 international units. The Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition recommends 400 international units. Units. So stay in stay in that range. Please don't take high doses. Um, I read a case report earlier this year of an elderly gentleman who was hospitalised with life-threatening hypercalcemia. I think he was taking like forty thousand units a day. And I, I went <laughs> online. I, I, well, I just went online. You go on Amazon. You can get this stuff. You can order super high doses of vitamin D just to over the counter. But please don't take them. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, I think on that note. I think we probably covered as much as we can in the hour that we've got. I guess the take home points is like with the most things, eat a variety of plants. Yeah, absolutely. That's what it comes down to. And I mean, this is, it goes back to Michael Pollan's old advice, you know, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, it has been enlightening. And of course, now I want to go back to school and learn as much as I can about the gut. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm constantly learning. It never stops. I remember when I went into university in 1995 and I told my friends I was going to qualify as a doctor in 2001. And they said, what? You're going to be in studying for, until 2001? That's insane. But of course, the truth is it never stops. You know, it never stops. Yeah, there's always something new and it's a very obviously evolving topic, I suppose. Absolutely. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm looking forward to the six-week um, Happy Pear Healthy Gut kind of program that you're bringing out. Yeah. So once that's it, if, if anyone wants to uh, check me out on Instagram, at Devon Gut Doctor, um, as soon as we have details of that, I'll be putting them out. Yeah. And I'll put that into the show notes as well so people can just click and follow you. Absolutely. And any of your listeners in the UK, um, we should put a little note in there about the uh, Plant-Based Health Professionals UK Health and Nutrition Conference. That's happening in Manchester, April 13th. Um, So that's going to be um, a whole bunch of plant-based doctors and other plant-based health professionals talking about the benefits of a plant-based diet. So um, tickets are available now. And if you go to pbhp.uk, you can get yourself a ticket. Cool. Sounds interesting. All right. Well, thank you so much. And I'm sure we will cross paths shortly. All right. Thanks, Aaron. It's been a pleasure. No problem. And that's all for today, guys. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Of course, we'll see you next week. If you have questions or want to find out more information about working with me, check out my Instagram at thevegan underscore coach, my website, thevegancoach.org, or just check out my Facebook page. Have a great day and see you next week.